in some areas is very lacking and that, that I have not developed the patience to wait on the Lord. I, I get frustrated because I don't find dialogue often with the Lord. And what he's teaching me is that it's because I don't wait. You know, I'm part of this soundbite, give it to me now culture that we live in. And I say, Lord, what do I do? Is it this or is it this? And if I don't hear something in five seconds, I go on and just figure, well, I'll just use wisdom and make a decision. And he's trying to teach me to wait. So I get up real early this morning and I prayed and God kind of showed me how to put this whole thing together. I'm telling you all this because I wasn't sure, you know, Lord, was I just lazy? Should I stayed up all night and prayed? And I get in the truck to go get the trailer and I turn on the radio. There's like this praise um, show that they have on one of the stations that I listen to in the morning when I'm coming to church. And the guy says, and our next song is from Christy Knuckles. And she starts singing this song. And as she gets to the chorus, she says, with arms lifted high, Lord, we will wait for you. And arms lifted high is is an expression of worship. And in worship, we would wait. So I'm thinking, you know, that could be just the coolest coincidence ever, but I'm just holding on that as God told me that it was his word for today. So if I'm a little discombobulated, it's because I don't typically write the sermon at 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. Although sometimes it feels like I haven't gotten it until then. Yeah, she's heard all she can stand. All right, so (laughs) you, on the other hand, you got a bagel, you got to (laughs) stay. So what we're going to do today is... I'm going to review for you last week's message because it's relevant to worship and wait. And then the worship team's going to come up and we're going to worship and then we're going to wait. And I believe that the Lord is going to speak to us. We're going to grow in relationship as we do that. So let me just start then with last week's message and reviewing it for you. Some of you heard it. If you didn't hear it, I'm I'm asking you to get on the internet, download it or listen to it on your computer because it's absolutely from God for we people for this day. It truly was a message for us for now, okay? And the message was on passion. We got a word from the Lord, passion. Put put the little thing up there if you wouldn't mind, Eric. I got it right here as we were finishing worship. The Lord spoke that word to me and he spoke it to me in a context. And I, I was so impressed by it that I wrote it on my little, I carry this card, right, for my announcements and my prayers. I wrote it in big letters. That's the scan of part of my little card that day. Put the card in my pocket. I walked up to go out, and I asked the lady to pray for me. And, and within 30 seconds, as she's praying over me in the Spirit, she starts saying the word, passion, passion, passion. She says, the Lord is screaming in my, in my ears, passion, passion, passion. So I knew that that was a confirmation that what he had told me down here really wasn't just, you know, my imagination. It was the Lord. Last week was the message that he gave me to speak to our lack, our issue, his concern for us with regard to passion. We listened to a song by a country music singer. I think the title of the song was Live Like You Were Dying. And the point that the guy was trying to make is he'd had this compelling event. And, you know, if I, if I had to do it all over again and I thought I was going to die... What would I do differently? How would I live my life differently? And God can bring us to a place of passion based upon um, a compelling event or other ways. In the song, it was a compelling event. When we had Finley Molina up here, and he had that near-death experience, and he's a paramedic 
firemen. And so when he's in the ambulance, he knows what the different alarms mean when he's hooked up to the machines. And he was sure he was going to die. And he said that the thing that was going through his head over and over again is that I have done nothing for God. And God gave him the opportunity then to do some things, to, to have his life back with this new passion. Well, for us, the name of that song is Live Like You Are Dying. For us, maybe what we should do is live like we're dead. Because that's the gist of Christianity, is that we were, we were our old man. We died to ourselves, and we've risen and we're born again in Christ Jesus. So practically, from a Christian perspective, from a gospel perspective, we're not dying, even though we are dying. We're dying to those things of our flesh as the things of the Spirit grow up inside of us. But we actually have died and we're born again. So, so we're living like we've died. We're Lazarus in that respect. We went down and came up. All right? Okay. We tried to put a face on what passion for God looks like. And the dictionary gives us words like fervor, enthusiasm, zeal, fire, obsession, fixation, compulsion. You know, words that really speak to passion. And then we put it in the context that the Lord spoke it to me, which was context for Jesus. Context to, to know him, to be like him. Passion to see his kingdom come and his will be done. That the kingdom of heaven really would be manifest on this earth. Manifest in miracles and signs and wonders. Manifest in changed lives and people that are bold to speak for the Lord. All those things. That was the passion that the Lord was speaking of when he gave me that word. So we, we, we tried to paint a picture of what he's telling us. And then... We talked about covenant, and we, we dis- described covenant as a contract. A covenant is a contract. When you got born again, if you, if you got born again, if you're a saved person, you signed a contract with God. He signed it in the blood of his son. You signed it in the word of your mouth, in the, in the position of your heart. A covenant is between two or more parties. It has expectations of each party on the other party. So when we went into this covenant relationship, this contract with God, we have an expectation. What he offered to us in the covenant is that he would provide for us his spirit to come and dwell inside of us, to provide us the power to be transformed in the likeness of his son Jesus, and then ultimately that he would provide for us eternity with him in heaven. That's our expectation. That's what God's got to bring to the table for this covenant to be rightly fulfilled. In the same way... God has an expectation of us. When we sign the covenant, we sign the covenant by confessing with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God truly did raise him from the dead. Our side of the deal is things like faith in Jesus, the lordship of Jesus in our lives, and the surrender of our lives to his will. Then I showed you a scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 and 13, where God in the Old Covenant describes his expectation. And and if you read the New Testament and the New Covenant, what you find out is it hasn't changed. So Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13, the Lord says through Moses, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, that's a reverent fear, fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's passion. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. So even the keeping of 
his expectation on our parts ultimately boils down to for our good. And we know that ultimately for our good is that we can spend eternity with him versus eternity away from him. Heaven versus hell, the lake of fire. So in this covenant, there's expectations. We have expectations of what God will do. He has expectations of what we're going to bring to the covenant. If you hire somebody to paint your house, your expectation is that the house is going to get painted to a satisfactory way, the colors that you want. The painter's expectation is that if he does the work the way or she, the way that they said they would, that you'd pay them, right? Covenant, contract, agreement. We talked about that if we're honest, we'll understand that as Christians, we really only have two places that we put our passion. One is in Christ. We can be passionate for God. The other is self. Now, in some ways, we do both. You know, In one area of my life, I haven't surrendered my passion to God. I've kept that, that, that selfish passion. In other areas of my life, I've released it to the Lord, and I'm very passionate about Him. But His demand... Not his suggestion, but his demand is that he be first in everything in our lives, right? We looked in a couple of places and highlighted that passion for self is called selfish ambition. My ambition is for myself, not for others, not for Jesus. And the Bible does not speak kindly about selfish ambition. If you find selfish ambition in the Bible, I promise you, you're going to find stuff that you want to stay away from. Ultimately, or not ultimately, but in James, he even describes selfish ambition as a wisdom from this world that's demonic. And where this wisdom exists, selfish ambition, me before you, me before God, it's idolatry, but it also creates all kinds of chaos and bad things. Now, we've been indoctrinated in our culture to say that self is number one. If we have an idol in this world, it's not... Allah, it's not any other gods, but the God who is me. That's the God that we tend to put above the capital G, big G God in our world. And the Bible is teaching us that we have to die to self, that we might live to Christ. So we talked about two places where we find passion, either in the Lord or in ourselves. And if we're honest, that's the truth. Everything else that you might say my passion for, if it's not God... It's really self. You know, if I have a passion for ice cream, it's to, it's to serve me because I just really like ice cream. Okay? All right. We were blessed to see that our issue of passion, whether it be in our hunger for the things of the world or our just waning of passion for the Lord, wasn't something that caught God off guard. And in his word, in a lot of places, he talks about this. But two places we, we picked to highlight were an exhortation and a warning to us. The exhortation was that we should constantly examine ourselves. That we need to stand in the mirror of our lives and, and try to see ourselves as relates to the gospel as relates to the truth of God's word. And then we measure ourselves. Just like in the old covenant, there was a measuring stick that was called the law. Right? A person could say that I am righteous. I'm walking this good path, and I'm, and I'm not you know, really the, the, the worst person. I don't do that many bad things. And, the, and they, could, they could see their line as straight. 
But when you put their line next to the perfect edge of the law, they found out that their line had all kinds of squiggles and bends and that when you measured it against God's perfect law, there wasn't really a straight line on their line, right? So what he's saying to us is that you have to beware that you're going to wander. You're sheep and you're going to wander. So you have to constantly be examining yourself. And outside of fellowship, the only examination you're going to have is yourself. And our hearts are deceitful anyway. So if we have little relationship with the Lord, meaning that we won't hear, we won't sense his conviction, and we're outside of fellowship, we don't go to a grow group, we don't come to church very often, then we're relying only on our deceitful heart to show us the places where we've wandered from the faith. That was the exhortation. The warning itself came in the parable of the sower and the seeds. And in that parable, the sower is God. The person who plants the seeds is God. right? In John, in two different places, and maybe in 1 Corinthians, I can't remember. But in John, for sure, in two different places, the word teaches us that nobody comes to the Lord unless that they're drawn. Nobody can come to Jesus unless they're drawn by the Father. So when he plants the seed, there's a drawing that's going on, you know, a, a, a pulling, a, a drawing on, on your heart towards the Lord. The seed itself is the word of God. And then he, he goes on to describe all these different kinds of soils that the seed can get, can get sown into. And, and some is rocky, and some is hard, and some has thorns and thistles, and all these different soils, all these places where the seed gets planted, is the condition of our hearts to receive the word of God, the, the, the gospel message of truth. And then Jesus explains the parable to his disciples later, and he explains to them what each of these different soils means. Um, put up for me, if you would, the Mark scriptures, uh, the second set of Mark, Mark scriptures, verses 18 and 19, if you can find that spot. The, the one type of soil that I really feel is our biggest problem in our culture in the United States, the Western Church, is the one that's described here. And Jesus says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So, in our culture, we're so bombarded with stuff. Stuff that I want. Stuff that you have that I don't have. Um, gosh, you could just go on and on and on. Advertisements. See, advertisements are just television, regular broadcast television or cable you know, television that has commercials. The, the show itself only exists for the purpose of providing a vehicle for a commercial. Right? If, if you... Gosh, this is, I don't know if this is a good, good analogy. If you love jelly and you love peanut butter but you don't really like to eat it off a spoon. The only reason you have a sandwich is the bread is the vehicle that you use to provide yourself the peanut butter and the jelly. That was a bad one. Not so good. But you know what I mean, right? Right? <laughs> That's all a television show is. That's it. It's, it's something that will put your eyes in a place where you'll see somebody, somebody's message. And the message from that somebody is 99.9 .9 times out of 100, the world. Drink my beer. Why? Well, don't you see all the half-dressed ladies that are with the guys that drink my beer? Don't you wish that you could run around with half-dressed ladies? And they're trying to make these associations in our minds. Kids, they advertise. Kids do not have, a three-year-old kid does not have a grocery budget. 
Couldn't go to VG's and buy a box of anything. But don't you watch those cartoon shows on Saturday morning and see what they're doing. They're influencing the child to influence the parent. Ah, Junior, you know, you really shouldn't have frosted flakes three times a day. And the parent bends, and the kid gets what they want. Because the guy that wrote the commercial went to college and studied psychology so he could know, or she, how to bend your mind to the will of the company that wants to sell you whatever it is they want to sell you. So what happens then in this parable, what Jesus is trying to warn us is that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, are going to draw you away and the seed of God's word that was planted inside of you by God himself is going to become unfruitful. That's the biggest issue that we have in our culture today. I have soccer practice. I have band practice. I have work. I have this. I have that. But if I don't do this, then I can't have a big house. And my my brother's got a big house. I have to have a big house. It's like cares of the world. Watch yourself and see what happens when your passions and your desires for those kinds of things become your passions and your desires. You will see that your time with the Lord will be compromised. Your passion will have shifted. Okay? All right. We took a look at a measuring stick. How do I know where my passion is? Right? And the measuring stick that we used was the lens of the priorities of your life. So if you could step back for a minute, get out of your forest so you can see the trees, and just take a look at a typical week in your life, and look at what you do. The things that you are most likely not to, to leave, that you would leave in your life, that, that, that are priorities for you, are the things you have passion for. And if, if those things are not God or God-centered, they're selfish. I struggle with it myself all the time. Seriously. My Bible is on here. It's the most wonderful thing ever. The problem is, so is every kind of other thing that could tickle me and entertain me. And how many times I get distracted when I'm reading my Bible, thought pops into my head, and I don't have the discipline to not go and look at something, right? All those things distract us from the Lord. Anybody remember where I was just at? No, no, no. Oh, the measuring stick. Thank you. The measuring stick is our priorities. If, if, if you said, you know what, I read the Bible about a half an hour a week, and Jesus is my passion, I'd say, you're deceiving yourself. What else do you do with the time that you actually have, the, the, the time that you could spend the way you want to? What are you doing with it? If you're spending 30 minutes of it a week with the Lord, he is not your passion, and you need to be really concerned about that, as I do. Okay? The measuring stick is priority. Finally, we saw that God made a way through relationship for us to know him. So he understood that we were going to have this problem. He created a way that we could solve this problem. The, the, the solving of the problem of passion for God is to know God. He made a way for relationship. As we come to know God, as we gaze upon his beauty, as we see his truth, as we start to appreciate really what it means to have been saved by the blood shed by his son, we can't help but be passionate about him. And it becomes this good spiral, this snowball that rolls downhill that picks up more and more because the word says, ask, seek, and knock. And it really means in in the original language, continually, constantly, ask, seek, and knock. And as we do that, he'll reveal himself to us. And as we find him, we want more of him. The, the, the reward of finding God is God. 
Okay, so the answer to the question about passion is the discipline of seeking God. And then as you find him, it requires less discipline because now you know him and you'll desire him over those things in the world. And we closed last week with a scripture from the book of Revelation. And it's, it's Jesus speaking to the angel at the church of Laodicea, which was the dispassionate church. He rebukes Laodicea. And one of the other churches earlier where he says, you've lost your first love. How many people can relate to the fact that when you came into saving knowledge of Christ, you were on fire? And, and to some extent, that fire has diminished. We've lost our first love. It requires work to stay in love with your first love. It's, it's effort. As we know him, it's less effort because we come to see who he is and how wonderful he is. But Paul, excuse me, Jesus, through the apostle John, when he took him in this revelation that he gave him, spoke to this dispassionate church in Laodicea. And the message he spoke to them is this. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Is there a better way to describe a lack of passion? You have, you have nothing. You, you got no heat. You got no cold. You are totally dispassionate. And I can't abide dispassion in my mouth. So I spit you out. He goes on to say, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That, that ties back to the scriptures in Mark about the soil. The soil of your heart. You've been so deceived by the cares of life and the riches of the world that you think that you're rich and you think that you're prosperous. But he says what you really are, because you're lukewarm and you've been distracted, is you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's, that's what you really are. When you're in that condition of having been drawn away from your passion for the Lord, lost your first love, and found your passion in the world. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous. Zealous. Passionate. Remember, zeal was one of the words that the dictionary uses to describe passion. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn away from the world and back towards your first love. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So what Jesus is saying, and what God teaches us all through the scripture is that he desires relationship with us. For some reason, he's made it such that we have to take the first step in that relationship. He's made the path. Jesus has taken a step to stand at the door. But through our passion, through our true desires, we have to open the door and invite him in. He isn't going to come through the door if we don't open it. And if he comes in, he'll sit and have a meal with us. That's what we're going to hope and believe to experience in our worship time today, is that we're going to invite him in. Okay? All right, so worship and waiting. I've not, I've not really 
deeply studied worship as a, as a biblical topic that I feel comfortable that I could teach you in any great depth on worship. But, the, but I've studied the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, enough and pondered it and certainly read enough scripture to feel like I have a reasonable understanding of worship. When we come together congregationally on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or, or any time, come together and worship, that group expression of worship is not the same as our personal expression of worship. Although we can do the same things in our quiet time that we do together as a congregation, true worship, true worship biblically, the way, the way I see it, isn't just raising our hands, which is totally appropriate and biblical, singing songs to the Lord, playing music to the Lord, that is, that is worship. But when you look at the words, the, the Hebrew word shaka, the Greek word proskuneo, shaka, proskuneo, those are the words that, that the English word worship is most frequently translated from in the Bible. They both say the same thing. Worship, give you an example. I don't have that many physical talents, but I am capable of worship. Now, worship isn't actually a nap. It's, it's, it's the posture of our hearts. It's the posture of our souls. It's the posture of us recognizing God. And us. I, I had this vision one time when I was worshiping, praying, and I was literally, I mean, I wasn't like a, wasn't like, um, you know, John on the Isle of Patmos and he was called up to heaven or Isaiah, you know, when he got to go into the throne room. It wasn't exactly like that, but somehow I, I knew that in some way I was in God's real presence. Like if I actually got to go there and the, the experience was so powerfully humbling, you know, where Isaiah gets in the throne room and he says, I forget exactly the words, but, you know, oh my gosh, I'm a dead guy because I've spoken wrong words. You know, he was, his filthiness was so apparent to himself in front of a holy God that he thought he was just a, a done guy. He was done. Um, I wish I could explain it. Anyway, my, my posture went instantly to flat on my face, instantly to close my eyes, because I could not look on such a holy God when I could see the contrast or have any perception of the contrast between me and him. Worship is, in the personal sense, it's us recognizing God and humbling ourselves. That's why I'm telling you, humility, humility is if there was any virtue in Christianity that you should strive for, it's humility. It's to learn to humble yourself because everything can flow out of humility because humility is the soil where God plants grace. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride is the thing that God resists. He will not be in the presence of pride, but he will pour his grace into humility. So corporate worship is really, really powerful because Scripture talks about what happens when two or more gather together, right? When two or more are gathered in his name, Jesus says he'll be there. When, if one will put a 1,000 to flight, two will put 10,000 to flight. So when you take two in the name of God, it's not 
an adding, right? If we added it, one would be 1,000, two would be 2,000. But it's a magnitude that happens when we get multiples of people together, one heart, one spirit, one purpose, to worship God. It's a, it's a magnitude effect that happens. So when we corporately worship, we should anticipate an encounter with God. We should ask the Holy Spirit to show us, to help us to worship in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well. He said, the, the time is coming and the time is now when the true worshipers will worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth. Well, if that's the way that he wants it done, then that's the way we need to ask for help to do it. Personal worship, seriously, is your life. It's how you live it. Your worship, day in, day out, moment in, moment out, to the Lord is how you live your life. We played softball this weekend in Battle Creek, and um, it, it's not a typical church-on-the-street team. Roger, who runs that particular ministry for us, has this group of guys that are kind of his tournament pals. So there's a core of church-on-the-street guys, and then these other guys that are the same bunch every single time for these tournaments. So the end of the season is this great big tournament in Battle Creek, and I'm telling you, the guys that Roger brings are just... I'm proud for them to be associated with Church on the Street. They're wonderful men, young men. Um, the tournament was such that you played three games. Just a random draw, you played three games. And then depending on how you did in those three games, you would either uh, be placed in the upper bracket of 12 teams or the lower bracket of 16 teams. And then once that part of the thing started, if you won, you got to play again. If you lost, you went home. So we won two and lost one. We were, we were in the top bracket, and the first game we played was against a team that hadn't lost any games. And um, we were at that place where it really mattered, right? End of the season, if we lose this game, we're done. No more softball till next year. And we got a couple of bad calls, right, at the very beginning of the game. And a couple of the guys, wonderful Christian men, their witness didn't come out so good. They sold out their witness and their character, their passion for God shifted from him to, I was safe, not out. He didn't tag the base. He missed it. That wasn't a strike. That was a ball. They dishonored the umpire and they switched their passion. Well, guess what? When you're hitting home runs and you're winning all your games, it's not hard to be a good witness. It's when you're tested. When you're about to go home because that umpire made a mistake that your character God's showing you. He might just let you lose a softball game so that you can see where your true passion is. There was no worship for God in that moment. There was no worship for God in that moment. And they're great guys. I, I'm sure they've repented and they've been convicted. And you know, But your life, how you live your life, the words that come out of your mouth, the thoughts that you allow to stay in your head... That's your, that's your worship. That's your surrendered life to God. That's you prostrating yourself before him. Because I promise you, your flesh will want you to do other things that are not worshipful to God. And, and even not as inconsequential as a referee or an umpire made a bad call in a softball game. But corporate worship is where we have the opportunity to have that magnifying effect, that multiplying, not adding effect on being in the presence of God, that we enter his, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Okay? All right. So, 
sermon illustrations that I could do standing up are always better than if I have to get down. I mentioned this a little bit earlier in my own struggle, but we live in this soundbite, give me headlines, ask a question, give me an answer now culture. We have been overwhelmed with stimulation. And it's only getting worse, not better, right? I, I look at the, you know, if you watch TV, you look at headline news, right? Just, just give it to me quick, give it to me quick, give it to me quick. The other thing that we've become is a people that demand to be entertained. If it's not entertaining, if it's not titillating, if, it, if it's not exciting, we, we can't consume it for more than about a second. And sometimes the Bible isn't entertaining, it's necessary. Sometimes, and this is my conviction that the Lord shared with me earlier this week in my prayer time, is like, Lord, do we get a mortgage or don't we get a mortgage? If we get a mortgage, we can be in that property sooner and we can reach people and, and we, can, we can worship in a different way and we can worship more often. Lord, it might be good to get a mortgage. Or do we wait? Because if we, if we get a mortgage, then we have debt. And we might find ourselves having to compromise serving mammon versus you Lord, what do we do? My flesh was get a mortgage. Let's just go. Get some money and let's get in there. But I don't hear the question. I don't hear the answer. Why? Because I hadn't developed the, uh, the ability to wait and to listen. I hear God's conviction all the time. Now, I'm, again, don't hear conviction as a bad word. Conviction is a glorious word. I hear it all the time. Almost always when my mouth is about to go. And, I, and I'll, I'll get stirred and be like, okay, yep, that wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to say that. We're so hungry to be entertained that we won't spend time doing things that might not be entertaining. And we're so conditioned, I need it now, I need it now, I need it now, that we've lost the ability to tarry, to wait on the Lord, that he might speak to us in his time and in his voice. My note says we want God to bow to us and to serve us in our give-it-to-me-quick-and-make-it-fun way of thinking or we can't get anything from him. I'm telling you, I'm as guilty as anybody about that. But we have to repent. What did he say? Repent. Be zealous and repent. Okay, two scriptures, and then we'll move on. Isaiah 40, 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. If you read that scripture in the context of of its other scriptures in Isaiah 40, it's not a direct correlation to what we're going to do today, but it's still truth that, that there's value in waiting on the Lord. Jeremiah 29, we read the this scripture last week with some other scriptures. The Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So what we're going to do now is we're going to worship. And then we're going to wait. So ponder a question. Ponder something that you would like to hear God speak to you. And then ask him. And then we'll worship. And then Isaac after worship, is just going to quietly play his keyboard and we're going to sit and tarry on the Lord. We might get a congregational word. Maybe someone will get a, a prophecy. Someone might get a, 
uh, a word of knowledge, um, maybe a, a word in tongues that would need to be interpreted. All that is fair game. If, you, if it's from the Lord, we're all about it. But that second part is going to be for us to tarry and to wait on the Lord so that we can learn to hear his voice in his time, to be patient. Patience is a very much a lost virtue, especially in our culture. Okay? All right, so if you would all stand, we're going to take the offering real quick.